This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. We live in a very secularized society, uh, one that we can practically just see changing around us almost daily. Uh, And no greater argument and no greater, I guess, thing to study is more relevant to our culture today. You know, we also live in a culture that's been mentioned before that wants to test everything, that questions everything. And you know, to question things, that's not necessarily a bad thing um, to, to try to evaluate something, because hopefully you're making it stronger, you're making it better, but we have to know where our source of truth is at. If you don't lack a source of truth, then we're going we're gonna to vary. We're going to drift away from what God has intended for us. And tonight we're going to be looking at a defense of one of the most core doctrines of our faith. And really, it's even hard to, to call it a doctrine because it's so basic. It's something that's so foundational to our, to our Christianity, to our beliefs. But it, again, it's something that is so under attack every day. Um, And of course, that is the existence of God. And so, on your handout, if you all received one, you'll see listed there is Hebrews 11, verse 6. You're welcome to look there or turn to your Bibles there, whatever works better for you. But here, the writer of Hebrews says, But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Again, we see that without faith, it is impossible to please God. See, we see that first element of faith, that's a foundation, but it's that he must believe that, believe in God. He must believe that, oh, sorry, for he that comes to God must believe that he is, that God is, that he exists. The existence of God is vital to our faith. God is the I am, the Alpha and Omega beginning and end, the author and finisher of our faith, he is creator and he is existence. And yet it is something that it comes under scrutiny so often. See, from a secular perspective, if seeing is believing, how can you believe in an invisible God? But is seeing actually believing? Or is believing seeing? How many know someone who denies the existence of God? I think most of us do. Has anyone actually had a a conversation with them and tried to persuade them the other way? Again, some of us do. It's it's something that we're surrounded by this more and more in our society. But see, many people today, they do not believe God exists. But it's really not a conscious rejection or it's just they don't necessarily care as much. Well, we, we, we think that often this world, you know, purposely rejects God, and a lot of times they do, and that's, that, well, that would be atheism, but uh, perhaps it's often just practical rejection, practical atheism, as people live as though the here and now is all that matters. What I would like to do tonight is provide some talking points that you can use when you talk with someone, with someone who does not believe in God. 
The purpose of the talking points is so that you can clear off some of the roadblocks and rubbles that prevent people from taking the idea of divine revelation seriously. Because when they reject belief in God, what are they really rejecting? They're rejecting the revelation of God to man. By saying God does not exist, they're saying he has not revealed himself. If he has not revealed himself, then he necessarily does, doesn't exist. And to be even more pointed, what they're saying is, God has not revealed himself to me. I have not seen him. I have not heard him. I have not felt him. And ultimately, I am not accountable to God. It's something that the world doesn't want to come into position with. See, by making such statements based on empirical evidence, that's evidence that's observable, we're actually making a very arrogant claim that just because I can't see something, just because I can't feel something, means it doesn't exist. And hopefully we can see how arrogant and prideful that is. They're willing to deny evidence for the Creator. And this is the most important thing for you to learn this evening. It is not that the evidence is not there, but rather that the evidence is unrecognizable to the believer. And only God through the work of the Holy Spirit, can illuminate the believer to recognize the evidence of revelation and believe it to be true. That should be the angle of our life, is that we point others not only to the existence of God, but to something so much greater, a relationship with God. And these things, these tools that we're going to look at today, they are, they are great to think about. They are great to open up our, our reason, our logic that God has given us. But if it doesn't end with pointing people to Jesus Christ, what is the point of apologetics? And so we need to make sure our hearts and our minds have the right purpose. That is why Psalm 14 and verse 1 is so important. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The fool denies evidence. Literally, the stupid or unreasoned, the irrational person who says in his mind that God does not exist, that's such a silly, such a, an ignorant stance. The mind who is so unreasonable is reasoning that God does not exist. The mind that it's unreasoned, that it just it doesn't make sense, that if a reasonable mind denies the unreasonableness of God, it's foolishness. The fool is literally ignoring the reasons for God's existence and insisting he does not. So, from the start, we set out two very important truths. The existence of God is reasonably or rationally known. And then second, it takes reason, rational thought, to know the existence of God. Before we prove those or provide those reasons, there must be a rationally understood for God's existence. Let us, sorry, before we get into the specifics of these things, let's look at some ways that people deny the existence of God. We're going to look at a couple of different broader categories that people would fall underneath. And again, these are not necessarily all-inclusive or most people don't even fall into or purposely fall into one of these categories, but we'll take a look at them nonetheless. And the first one we're going to look at is atheism. I think it's probably it's the most familiar one that we come into contact with. Um, the atheist concludes that the arguments and evidence for God's existence 
are insufficient to believe that any God exists. They would go on to say that person, a person subjective to religious experiences, they say something about human experience and not the nature of reality itself. Therefore, one has no reason to believe that a God exists. In other words, the argument for God's existence failed to prove his existence, and those who believe the evidence are saying something about themselves and nothing about God. So they, they deny the complete idea of a God. Um, they just point back to mere reason, to mere human nature, as why we would even believe in a God. But really, atheism can also be, be defined into two even more specific categories. That's kind of a positive and negative atheism. So positive atheism, or strong or hard atheism, as it's sometimes called, this is the truly uh, militant or often hostile form of atheism. And it claims that no deities exist at any time or in any place. The strong atheist explicitly asserts the non-existence of gods. The second is negative atheism, or weak or soft atheism, as it's often called. This type of atheism does not believe in the existence of any deities, but does not ex explicitly assert there to be none. Perhaps an easy way to differentiate the two types of atheism is the following. The, uh, a positive atheist, is, atheist positively denies there are no gods, while a negative atheist simply lacks a belief in a god. So that's kind of atheism summed up. Again, it's probably the most familiar um, term that we're used to. The second term is agnosticism. Um, and agnosticism is the view that the true value of existence of any deity is unknown or unknowable. Again, they think that the true value of an existence in a deity is either unknown or unknowable. Agnosticism does not necessarily define one's belief or disbelief in gods, because agnostics may still identify themselves as theists or atheists. Again, we get some overlap, and we're just really looking at the nuances of different positions. So, um, again, we'll, we'll kind of elaborate a little bit more as we go on. So, finally, the agnostics... The, Agnostic theist believes in the existence of a god or god, but regards the basis of this proposition as unknown or inherently unknowable. Agnostic theists may also insist on ignorance regarding the properties of the god they believe in. To the other extreme, the, the agnostic atheist does not hold a belief in the existence of any deity because they claim the existence of a deity is either unknowable in principle or currently unknown fact. All right, that is agnosticism. All right. The third that we're going to look at is apatheism. And I had not heard of this one before, before I looked at it. But an apatheist, you might think of the words apathetic to go along with this definition. But apathy, an apatheist is someone who holds no interest in either accepting or denying that gods exist or do not exist. An apathist lives as if there are no gods and explains natural phenomena without reference to any deities. The existence of gods is not rejected, but may be designated unnecessary or useless. Apathists believe that believe God or gods neither provide purpose to life or influence, nor influence everyday life. And one quick note, as I read these definitions, I say often when I refer to their belief is that they don't necessarily believe in a god or gods. Because to an atheist, agnostic, 
or so on, really the number of gods doesn't matter. And so as we go on, that's one thing that's going to be unique to a Christian perspective is that we serve one God, and we're trying to prove the existence of one God. Let's continue on. Next is the um, agnosticism. Sorry, that's ig with an I, as you can see on your notes there. The final type is the agnostic. The agnostic usually concludes that the question of God's existence or non-existence is usually not worth discussing because concepts like God are usually not sufficient or clearly defined. Agnosticism holds that every other theological position, including agnosticism or atheism, assumes too much about the concept of God. The agnostic claims the existence or non-existence of God is meaningless until the definition of God is clearly defined. And we're going to come back to the definition of God in a minute. Um, but some agnostics go a step further and say that even if a definition of God can be presented, it is meaningless because all such definitions are circular. In other words, the definition cannot be proven or misproven. So I, th I hope you all understand what circular reasoning is. is you know, you, you can't use to find something by defining it necessarily. So you're look at the example here. Basically, they would say that God created everything. God is a part of everything. God created himself. And so we kind of, we, we kind of, you know, turn ourselves into a mess when in their line when we don't define God or when we do define God, and in their logic, it doesn't add up. But the agnostic finds the conclusion to be meaningless, and therefore any further discussion on the existence of God is futile. So to be sure, you know at first whether you're encountering an atheist, an agnostic, an apathist, or an agnostic, it really doesn't necessarily matter. But, because in the end, they all are trying to argue against the existence of God. Um, and most people are not epistemologically or, you know, aware of what category they fall into. They just say, I don't believe in God. That's typically how most people are going to line up. Um, so therefore, the final arguments of God for God's existence are applicable regardless of someone's stance on atheism or agnosticism or whatever it might be. But before we go any further and look at these individual arguments, it's beneficial to provide a coherent definition of God. But think about it. Can we define God? How can an infinite God be defined using finite language? Or in fact, how can an infinite God even be comprehended in our own minds? It's something that we can kind of stirs our mind that an infinite God that is above everything, before everything, that we as humans can comprehend him as Christians. And that's why it's important that we point out that scripture is so important here. Scripture is our source where we know who God is because God has revealed himself. God has given us his revelation. First, we see that he has revealed himself in nature. Um, we see God in creation. We see God in his written word. And we also see God revealed through Jesus Christ. But God has made us in his image so that we can describe God, that we can comprehend God. We are made in his image. So because of this, we can describe God. 
we cannot limit God in a definition, but we can describe him. And I'm sure we can go on with list after list of descriptors for who God is, for his character, for his nature, for who he is. But for our purposes this evening, we'll describe God as omnipotent, omniscient, eternal, good, united, simple, that's God is not composite, incorporeal, that means God is not material, immutable, and impassable, I mean, God is not affected. To summarize, we can say that God is great and that he is personal, all-powerful, eternal, a spirit, present everywhere, everywhere within his creation, and unchanging in his perfection. And he is good in that his purity, integrity, and the entire complex of characteristics that are identified as his love make up his moral attributes. Uh, and this is really important for our arguments because there is none like God. None like God. Uh, Psalm 86, 8 through 10 says, Among the gods there is none like unto thee, O Lord. Neither are there any works like unto thy works. All nations whom thou hast made shall come and worship before thee, O Lord, and shall glorify thy name, for thou art great and dost wondrous things. Thou art God alone. Again, we don't just serve a all a, some random being that's out in the universe that, that doesn't interact with us. No, again, we have a relationship with God and we worship our loving creator. That's why we're in this building right now. That's why we come to church to worship God. And this is who he is. I'm so thankful that God just didn't make us and then leave us alone, but he created us and he is with us. Again, he is, he is interacting, and that's an understatement, with his creation. He is a sovereign Lord over all. And that's why it's so important that these arguments that we're going to look at this evening, they don't just, they're not going to prove the character of God that we know in Scripture. They're just going to prove the existence of God. And we'll touch on that here in a little bit. But so now as we look at six arguments for God's existence, the goal is to demonstrate that believing in God is reasonable, consistent with reason, and is actually more rational than the alternative of believing in his non-existence. So, before we actually get into these arguments, let me insert a quick note about faith. Unfortunately, there's kind of a misconception about faith, and really about Christians, that we just simply believe myths and fairy tales, um, and it's really sad. But Christians are accused of not believing in things based on facts or evidence or rational thinking. Therefore, Christians cannot be taken seriously. Um, I don't believe that's the case. But what does it mean to have faith? How do you decide what to believe and what not to believe? Are we asked to take blind leaps into the dark? Here's the bottom line. In order to live in this world, we are required to exercise faith really on a daily basis, but we exercise faith every day by using the three tools of faith, reason or science. That's the things that are observable, things that we can really study out. Also, intuition, how we process things, and our experiences. You know, these three things are different tools that we each use to make decisions, and ultimately on faith. Um, be careful that you use all these tools when considering questions of ultimate importance. 
See, when many people, when talking about matters of faith, they like to just use that first one, science. I think, we ta- I think uh, Pastor Long referred to that um, in a couple weeks ago. And, you know, ju- people like to use science and only science, not necessarily intuition and not always experiences. I'm not discrediting science. I think it's very valuable and we absolutely need it. But when it comes to matters of faith, we have to use all three, our intuition and our experiences as well. Um, but really, when people just bring science into it, or just reason might be a better word to use there, um, this creates an anti-supernatural bias and leads to a, an agenda-centric approach to evaluating evidence as opposed to an evidence-centric approach. It seems like religion is probably the greatest area in which people bring predetermined agendas to the discussion. I mean, we, we live in a world that's changing its perspective really on religion. And even this past Sunday, when uh, uh, Brother Smithwick was here and talking about worldview, you know, what is the worldview towards things of faith, towards things of religion? It's constantly and consistently becoming more and more negative because they come in with a presupposition that I am not going to believe what you have to say about God. I'm going to take my evidence. I'm going to take what I see. Again, going back to really that modernistic age coming in um, after the Enlightenment where I touch, I feel, I prove through reason. And so um, that we have to be very careful. We have to understand what people are coming into with that argument. Um, In John 1, the revelation is the final pillar of faith that Christians have. We believe in a God who wants to be known and has revealed himself most fully in Jesus Christ. We exercise faith every day. I think it's reasonable to have faith in the supernatural. So we, we mentioned a couple of times that we need to have a relationship with God. But does God want to have a relationship with mankind? Yeah, so you, it makes sense in reason that God, if God wants to be known by his creation, that he would make himself known. But I think we can also see this through reason. Now to the actual arguments. Unfortunately, we do not have time to discuss in detail all the arguments for the existence of God. We will, ha- we will not even be able to really go into great detail about the ones we will discuss. But there are other arguments that are reasonable and worthy of consideration. Admittedly, some are stronger than others. Some are more general arguments, and we're going to just touch on a couple of very general arguments very quickly. And the first one here is an argument of probability. An argument of probability. See, every day we exercise faith, therefore it is reasonable to have faith in the supernatural. All right? Again, very quick going through these. An um, anthropic argument. Things about ourselves, conscious, capacity for good and evil, yearning for eternity, religious experiences are best explained by the existence of God. Again, we can all think, when we have a mind, we know things. We have a a capacity to think and have reason. We know good from evil and so forth. Um, There's also the argument of immaterialism. The existence of love and beauty demonstrate that we do not live in a materialistic universe. All right. And these are some general arguments. And they're kind of going to be intertwined with some of the more specific arguments that we're going to be talking about here in just a second. But it's important that each of these kind of have a 
a little bit to play in our, in our reason to understand God's existence. Those arguments are good. Again, we just don't have time to cover everything. However, we will take a relatively detailed look at six basic arguments that, can be, that we can use in speaking with skeptics. Think of these as basic tools in your toolbox. Just like a tool, not every argument fits the situation. And sometimes you will, you will employ a tool and find that it does not accomplish the job that you seek to do. So you'll have to try a different one. But each of these will open up our hearts and our minds to kind of thinking, you know, about nature, about God's creation in some degree. But again, our faith comes back to Scripture. We don't base our whole entire faith off of reason and logic, but off of God's Word. So I'm going to go ahead and read off the different arguments that we're going to be talking about, and then we'll come back and talk of them very quickly in detail. Uh, the historical witness argument, the testimony or experience of witnesses establish the existence of God. The cosmological argument, all things in nature depend on something else for their existence, um, and whose cosmos must therefore depend on a being which, extends, which existed independently or necessarily. Again, I'm going to come back and cover these and hopefully simplify them a little bit. Uh, the teleological argument, to believe creation is the plan, purpose, and design of an intelligent designer is more intellectually plausible than creation through time, chance, and circumstance. The transcendental argument, knowledge, logic, and science are only possible because God's existence is a precondition for all thinking and knowledge. The ontological argument, God is the being greater than which can be conceived. The greatest being conceivable possesses the attribute of existence, therefore God exists. The axiological argument, the existence of the objectivity of moral values, moral duties, and moral accountability provides moral grounds for believing in God. Again, I just ran through all of those. Now we're going to go back and talk with them in more detail. All right? And we're going to look at their, maybe some strengths, how they work, um, but also how they're flawed a little bit and where they kind of fall apart from a logic standpoint. But just to note again that these arguments do not necessarily prove who God is or the specifics of how he has interacted with man. They seek to simply prove the existence of a God. All these fall short without the clarity of Scripture. And many of these will also prove the existence of, prove the existence of God from a purely logical or a philosophical perspective. But they do not provide evidence towards God. Or excuse me, um, they're going to fall short in maybe a logical way. Um, so we need to make sure, again, we're founded on Scripture. And so the first one we're going to look at is a historical witness argument. And this is kind of the idea that over time, so many people have um, documented the workings of God. Um, we begin with this argument because it's not an exceptionally strong argument. Um, but you say, Addison, you know, we're, we're talking about the writers of Scripture. How is it not a sound argument? Again, we're going to be talking about it from a logical standpoint. Um, it's not exceptionally strong because it's inductive. Like the argument of probability mentioned above, um, the historical witness argument depends on a fairly large amount of probability and cannot give absolute certainty. A number of obscure points always remain. An act of faith is required to dismiss these difficulties. Faith that historians were accurate in their writings and faith that what they reported was in fact the correct interpretation of the event. See, for the believer, you know, this is not problematic for us. 
because we take the Bible as God-breathed, inspired scripture. Um, but we only believe this because we are told by the Bible that it is divinely ins- inspired. Um, and so again, we see this, that would be circular reasoning there, is we're using the Bible to find what it is. Um, and so it's not a third party, but we shouldn't be alarmed by this circular reasoning uh, because there are plenty of, uh, of outside sources that corroborate the divinely inspired word of God. Um, see, this is where the, the historical witness argument demonstrates in itself a good but not great argument. It is good because there is a certain amount of credibility to an event where multiple sources are in agreement. But what if the secular witnesses disagreed with the divinely inspired writings? The divinely inspired, inspired text, because it is divinely inspired, would be true. But this is determined by faith. All right. Um, again, we're looking at things from a logical standpoint here. And on a logic standpoint, it falls apart because we're having to use more faith. And we're going to see how in other arguments, all, there typically always has to be an element of faith that gets put in. And that's why it's important that we, again, use reason, our intuition, and our experience as well. I do want to make one point for the next couple arguments, and that's a topic of infinite regress. Have you, anyone want to hear of infinite regress ever? It's a philosophical term. All right. And the Oxford language defines it as a sequence of reasoning or justification which can, which never, which can never come to an end. Basically, it's a sequence of reason that, you know, it's like a domino effect that we see that Oh, looking back, you know, this thing happened because this thing happened, because this thing happened, because this thing happened, and it goes on and on and on. And it's called an infinite regress. So, but however, you know, different philosophers um, point that an infinite regress cannot be possible necessarily because someone, in fact, if you're thinking of that domino illustration, someone had to come in and push the first domino over, all right? So we're going to look at different arguments for that. Just keep that in your mind as we look at, especially this first one, called the cosmological argument. And this came from a philosopher called Thomas Aquinas. Um, the cosmological argument is perhaps the most common argument for the existence of God. It is popular because it's easy to articulate. Simply stated, the cosmological argument seeks to demonstrate the existence of a first cause. The existence of all cosmos. Again, the first person to basically push over that domino. Um, nevertheless, it is a weak argument because it does not necessarily coerce a belief in God, but rather just general existence of some sort of first cause. In reality, the cosmological argument um, is not a single, single argument, but a family of arguments. Um, and we're going to look really quickly at some of those arguments. We're just going to look at two of them very quickly. The first one is the temporal cause argument. Again, this is all under the cosmological argument and just kind of a family, all right? This is simply the argument that the universe had a beginning at some moment in the finite past. And so it follows that someone or something had to cause the universe to come into being. Though this is logically a valid argument, the cosmological argument for a temporal cause at as first cause, does not deduce that the first cause is God. Again, they, they say that, yes, this can prove that there was a first cause to cause that domino to come over, but that doesn't prove that it was God. While the existence of God is sufficient to be a first cause, it is not a necessary condition. 
and thus making the temporal cause insufficient as a coercive proof. This leaves the door open to theories such as the Big Bang model as a cause for the beginning, beginning of the universe. All right? Um, again, a lot of these are not going to prove the existence of God, but I think they give evidence to the existence of God. Um, we're going to be very hard to prove through logic the existence of God, but again, it's going to give us um, evidence towards it. Um, but with this, um, the second is the logical cause. This type of argument adopts the concept of contingency and can be explained as follows. Everything in the cosmos is contingent on something else. That is, everything, everything's existence is accounted for by causal factors outside themselves. But this begs the question, what is the cause of the composite of all contingent beings? In other words, if you take all the contingent beings and group them together into what we call the cosmos, what caused the cosmos of contingent beings to come into existence? There would have to be a, there would have to be a being that exists of their own nature, again, outside of creation, essentially, and so has no external cause for their existence. Such a being would, nece would be necessary. This being obtains the definition of God. Um, I, hope, I hope you all followed that. Basically saying, if you took all the combinations, um, all the causes that are together lumped up in the cosmos, something had to be outside of that, and that definition being God. There are those who refute the, the logical cause of the, of the cosmological argument because it commits the fallacy of composition. Um, again, a fallacy is like an illegitimate, an illegitimate way of reason. Um, we already talked about circular reasoning. That's kind of an idea of a fallacy there. Um, the fallacy states you cannot infer that something is true of the whole from the fact that it is true um, of some part of the whole. For example, if you have 15 different beverages and each one has a unique and enjoyable flavor, then it follows that combining the 15 beverages into one beverage will result in a beverage with a unique and enjoyable flavor. We know that's not true. <laughs> Uh, so that's an example of a fallacy of composition. But lest, we admit, but lest we admit defeat on this application of the cosmological argument, the fallacy of composition is nothing more than a matter of probability. Another example, bricks are red. The wall is made of bricks. Therefore, the wall is red. Because of the truth of the, the premises, the valid argument is sound. In this manner, it is possible that the composition of all contingent beings in the cosmos requires a necessary being. Thus, the cosmological argument that employs logical cause is not soundly defeated. Unencouraged, if you would like to kind of get a more of a comprehensive and maybe simpler definition, you can look it up on YouTube. I found one called Crash Course Aquinas and the Cosmological Argument. I found it pretty helpful. I was trying to clarify some of these things as I was studying for this lesson. Um, the next uh, we're going to look at I didn't know it was Christmas time, but uh, I guess it still is. <laughs> uh, next, we're going to look at the teleological argument. The teleological argument. Um, again, I think this is one that we are probably all fairly familiar with, or at least we've come across it at one time or, or another. Um, so if the cosmological argument argues for the cause of the things in the universe, the teleological argument argues that those things are evidence of intelligent design. You recall that naturalism assumes that the origins of everything began through time and chance. The equation is like this, you know, an impersonal force such as 
you know, call it your energy, matter, whatever it might be, plus time, plus chance equals creation. And so given enough time, anything can happen, or can it? Um, a popular illustration is, um, is called the watchmaker kind of scenario. So say you're walking out in the middle of the woods, nobody's around, and you find a watch sitting on a stump. You wouldn't think to yourself, you know, I think that that watch evolves over millions of years and became that watch as I see it right now. No, you would automatically assume that a watchmaker made that watch, um, that it had an intelligent design to it. And so that's kind of a, a synopsis of what that, the teleological argument is. But the secularists would say, oh no, no, that's, we just have, we have evolution. You know, that's the intelligent design that's there. Um, and at this point, there are many apologists who seek to provide evidence of the low probability for creation coming into being over time and through chance. They often provide an algorithm of some sort that generates the odds of the chance creation of things. And it's, for, the, for example, the chance creation of DNA, the most basic building blocks of life containing 200 molecules coming into existence through mutations and entering into the primordial soup and ex is extremely low. So basically, the probability of evolution over all these times is extremely low. Like, I think I took an origins class in college, and, you know, it's um, basically, if, sci if scientists were to think something as probable as even the remotest chance of something happening, they would look at the numbers for evolution and say, no, that has no chance of happening. But yet, they still rely on it as a as evidence for how we came into existence. Um, but, uh, you know, they're right. It's, it's a low. However, this, is not, this does nothing to prove the existence of God. Saying that evolution um, is super low probability does nothing to prove the existence of God. In fact, it actually kind of demonstrates that there is a chance for God or for us to come out of existence based on natural selection and evolution. Um, so, in this way, the teleological argument provides no more comfort than a bet on the odds, albeit very good odds. And so, uh, in, in, my, in my own personal view, um, this argument can be flawed in some ways. So, again, I, I was reading um, an article by Florida International University, um, and they stated the argument as this. So, first of all, the universe exhibits orderly, design-like existence. And so secondly, unintelligent blind forces of nature cannot account for this orderly design-like quality. Therefore, there must be an intelligent force which does account for the orderly design-like quality, and that would be God. And so the only thing that I find a problem with this argument is unless you, this doesn't necessarily prove existence of God, it just proves an existence of an intelligent force of some sort that creates design. Um, and of course, as Christians, we know that to be God. But to the unbeliever, they just put natural selection right there, and they use that as their definition to how this intelligent-like design came in. Because again, it goes back to the idea of science, of reason, of things that they can put their hands on and see and feel and say, I see how natural selection works today. Because natural selection and microevolution is happening all around us today and it's something that can be studied. And they think, oh, because it's happening right now, 
it must have happened for millions and millions of years and billions and however much time they want to add on to it. Um, so that's where a flaw might come in. Um, see, Darwin's unique contribution to this is he provides the mechanism of evolution, and that's natural selection. Um, let's, uh, let's read through another scenario um, using the teleological argument. Imagine you're traveling in a train and you look out the window and see on the hillside a collection of rocks which together clearly form the words, welcome to Wales. Now, you are, at perfect, you are perfectly at liberty to believe that those stones were arranged on the hill random by random forces of nature, weathering, rock falls, soil erosion. But if you do so, you cannot at the same time believe that you are entering Wales. Does that make sense, how you can't believe those two things at the same time? If, upon seeing from the train window, a group of stones arranged as described, you were to conclude that you were entering Wales, and if your sole reason for thinking this, whether it was in fact good evidence or not, was that the stones were so arranged that you could not consistently with that suppose that the arrangement of the stones was accidental, you would in fact be presupposing that they were arranged that way by an intelligent and purposeful being or beings for the purposes of conveying a certain message having nothing to do with the stones themselves. Now, just as it would be irrational for someone to maintain that the stones on the mountainside were arranged by natural, non-purposeful forces of nature, whilst at the same time holding to the belief that he was entering Wales, so also it is now suggested it would be irrational for one to say both that his sensory and cognitive facilities had a natural, non-purposeful origin and also that they reveal some truth with respect to something other than themselves, something that is not merely inferred from them. So this argument comes down to natural selection um, and how we see it. However, can you see how chance cannot produce objective knowledge? So, while it is true that evolution by natural selection is sufficient to explain the origin, complexity, and diversity of life, it can only be elegant and convincing if you conclude that there is no supernatural creator. So, because we do, in fact, we have reason, reasoning capabilities. So, you know, the eyeball demonstrates this, this truth. The eye, the sense through which we observe shapes, letters, our whole entire universe, um, uh, must work at the time of creation in order for the beholder to utilize it for gathering knowledge. It is, logical, it is a logical impossibility for the eye to have evolved over time while during that time, it maintained the ability to sense those things necessary to its evolution. Um, even Charles Darwin said this, to suppose that the eye, with all its admittable uh, contrivances for adjusting the focus to different distances, for admitting different amounts of light, and for the correction of spherical and chromatic aberration, could have been formed by natural selection, seems, as I freely confess, absurd in the highest possible degree. That's coming from the founder of natural selection himself. So the creation of rational minds over time, chance, and circumstance are not a matter of probability, but a matter of possibility. At a minimum, if you believe in creation through the random chance of evolution, then you should also be able to recognize that there is sufficient evidence to believe um, that there was an actual creator, an intelligent designer. Truly, we only, have to one make, we only have to make one assumption, that someone created the world. Brandon, this is a big assumption, 
but it means we don't have to take thousands of smaller steps that actually are leaps into the dark. So I've given you a simple starting point. I think it's very one that's easy to articulate. Do we see design? Please know that in making this argument, there is no particular creation story or taking a stand on any particular method of an intelligent designer. Like we can't prove that because there's intelligent design that, you know, that there is, was a six, God made the earth in six days, little 24 hour days and so forth. No, it just means that there is an intelligent designer. So um, we cannot forget that we only know God as creator from special revelation that God created the heavens and earth. That's Genesis 1.1. And even Romans 1.20 tells us the same. God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood by those things which are made so men are without excuse. Again, God has, he has given us creation so that we can see God, we can understand him, and that we can we can worship him. And so that's why mankind is without excuse before God because he has interwoven our consciousness to, to see God in nature. Um, so I think in the, this argument is valid and we can look at creation and see intelligent design. Um, there is other, one other flaw though. <laughs> it says the world, I guess it's a kind of a fallacy, but if you were to say the world's complex, so it needs a designer. God is, God is complex, so does he need a designer? And we would ob obviously say no to that. Um, again, we could go back to some of our previous arguments that God is outside of those things, that he is the first person, the causal um, effect there. Um, we have a couple more arguments to go through, um, but I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to stop here. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, please visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We encourage you to share this message with others. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened and God's word has had an impact on your life as together we strive to show forth the path of life. Press on.